Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com aviation. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, and I'm glad my son is older than 13 because the family seating policies of airlines are getting very confusing. We'll talk about that in a lot of very interesting news this week. And we'll visit with Josh Marks, who has had about as varied a career in the airline business as you'll find. Josh started an airline, started an airline data company, and ended up CEO of a company that delivers satellite internet and in-flight video to airlines and cruise ships. Scott McCartney, I know you were a big user of Josh's data company when you were at the Wall Street Journal. That's right, Ben. Josh's company, MassFlight, gave us a look at data you couldn't get anywhere else, and that made stories better and made our airline rankings much more accurate, timely, and impactful. It also pressured DOT to up its data game so consumers could get a more realistic look at what was really going on at airlines. It was quite a week in travel news, Ben. On Monday, United Airlines announced that next month it will start opening up what it calls preferred seats to families traveling with a child under 12 years old. Preferred seats, not to be confused with premium extra legroom seats, are standard aisle and window seats that carriers block from reserving for free unless you have frequent flyer status at the airline. Otherwise, there's a fee. By changing the booking path so that someone with a child under 12 sees preferred seats with no fee, you have better odds of getting two adjacent seats for free, since the middle seats are usually free. It's not a guarantee, but United said if there aren't two adjacent seats available for free, a family could switch to another flight without penalty. The next day, Frontier did families even better by saying it is changing its booking path so that someone traveling with a child under 14 will be automatically seated together at no additional charge. If you don't like the seats assigned, you can pay to move to better seats. Both these policies are designed to accommodate one parent adjacent to one child, so a family of four could be scattered two and two. And note that airlines aren't agreeing on what counts as a young child. Frontier accommodates 12 and 13-year-olds, United doesn't. But it's progress, Ben, don't you think? I agree it's progress, Scott, but it's not the end of this because both of these solutions, if you want to call them that, seem pretty good at accommodating someone coming on with one child per adult. But what if a single adult brings two children or a single adult brings three or four children or two adults bring five children? Right. In all those cases, if the kids are young enough, you're going to want them sitting near 
family or someone in their party. And the solutions proposed by both United and Frontier don't seem to accommodate those. Now, I recognize those are rare situations, and I applaud United and Frontier for stepping up and coming up with a solution that probably does affect the largest number of cases where a child needs to sit next to an adult. Now, the interesting thing is how the industry will line up around the age thing. United under 12, Frontier under 14. As other airlines come in on this, my guessing is there's going to be some calibration of an age standard here soon. So I think this is a great start, Scott, but I don't think we're done with this yet. Yeah, I agree. And the age issue is is real. I remember doing a story years ago uh, that, that airlines were really varied on unaccompanied minors in terms of uh, age uh, that you, where you could send your kid alone off off to camp. It, it's curious that different airlines have such different definitions of what a child is. But I think you're right. I think this is a first step. I do think we may see sort of a hodgepodge of solutions. We may also see regulations saying, well, you have to address this somehow uh, and airlines that already have a policy in place will say, well, our policy is in place. I, I think if it reduces complaints, if it gets flights out uh, more on time, if it takes away some stress from gate agents and flight attendants, if it, if it gives families um, more, more comfort that they can uh, travel together and not put their child in danger or uh, disrupt a whole bunch of people in another aisle with a, uh, sitting with their child, uh, and and make travel more affordable for families, I do think it's all a step in the right direction. I agree. I'm wondering why the industry was so resistant, at least initially, since President Biden spoke about this as a junk fee in his State of the Union address, and Washington seems ready to sort of hammer down some new regulations. And my guess is that's why United and Frontier are both stepped up right now. But this has been an issue for a while. And it's strange to me that it's taken sort of this threat, if you will, of regulation to get them to act. Also, Scott, I think that smaller airlines do do a better job of this than the big airlines. One, because they carry more families. They're not carrying as much business travel. So naturally, they carry more families. And secondly, one of the things United directly addressed was taking the charge off these preferred seats. As you said, those are seats they block for frequent flyers and maybe people who buy certain fare types. And the low-cost airlines don't arbitrarily, and I guess it's not arbitrarily, but don't block seats in advance waiting for someone else. So the likelihood that you're going to get seats together, even if you have to pay for them on a low-cost airline, is much greater. 
frontier up the game a bit by saying they'll give the seats for free, which is also a very positive news for families. Yeah. And, you know, to that point, um, one of the best in the world at this is, of all carriers, Ryanair. Once they realize there's a passenger under their age uh, that qualifies as a child, you you get shunted into a separate booking path where you can reserve seats uh, without a fee. This is not an expensive fix for airlines, although it may be expensive to give up the seat fee revenue that they're forcing families to pay. But that's the whole point after all. And it is interesting that that uh, smaller airlines are uh, are leading the way on this. Some other news notes, Ben. Uh, We talked about the federal court case that families of Boeing 737 MAX crash victims brought against Boeing in Fort Worth, Texas. The families were trying to have Boeing's settlement with the government thrown out. The judge ruled against the MAX families and let the settlement stand. The Department of Transportation's inspector general announced that that office would investigate the FAA's role in flight cancellations. This is kind of a curious other side of the coin story. The FAA said it was going to investigate whether airlines were falsely selling schedules they couldn't deliver. But the FAA is also a very key cog in airline operations, and it may itself be a big reason why airlines can't always deliver the schedules they publish. So the DOT's IG is going to look at the FAA side. And American Airlines made news this week. As expected, Doug Parker stepped down as chairman. Had he stayed on, it probably would have raised signs that the transition to new CEO Robert Isom wasn't going well. But Robert has had a good first year. And so Doug is now officially out of the airline industry. I know Doug has lots of things he's eager to do, and he's been running airlines, America West, U.S. Airways, and American, for a long, long time. Doug drove industry consolidation as much as anyone because he realized eight medium-sized airlines could never make money, but four or five big carriers could perhaps be consistently profitable. He's been a creative leader. He saved America West from certain failure after 9-11. He certainly changed, some might say saved, American Airlines from its bankruptcy malaise. So a major tip of the hat to Doug Parker for all he's done for air travel. Scott, Doug Parker is a real innovator in this industry, and he's a great guy to boot. Uh, You outlined the major things he has done, and he will be missed in this industry in a lot of ways because the way this industry looks today has a large Doug Parker imprint on it. That said... He created a great succession for himself at American with Robert Isom, and I expect we're going to hear from Doug once in a while now, even though he's not in an official role. Maybe we'll even now get him on the podcast, Scott. I hope so. I hope so. In terms of the um, other things you talked about, I feel bad for the families of the Boeing 737 crash victims that were trying to get the previous settlement um, ruled out. But I think the judges made a smart decision by saying that was a settlement that was reasonable and it was put together on reasonable terms. 
And so there was no reason to say that it should go away and there should be some new settlement. So I think it was a good decision, even though I have empathy for those families. And the other side of the coin story that you talked about, I think is great. I've said, and I know I'm not unique in this, that sound airline operations and reliable airline operations are really a partnership between airlines, the FAA, union leaders, and airport leaders. And so to investigate what role each of these has in this is really important. If this encourages the FAA to upgrade their technology sooner, that would be a good thing. Even if it's just a good thing to say that the airlines have to be more realistic about what the FAA can do, that could be a good thing too. Yeah, I agree. And it's hard for the FAA to investigate itself. And an airline can't move an airplane without permission from an FAA air traffic controller. So the FAA, as you say, has has a big role in this. Um, and uh, somebody outside the FAA uh, really needs to be looking inside the FAA. It's interesting, too, with the with the Boeing settlement, um, you know, what the families wanted was to hold somebody inside Boeing uh, accountable. And, and we're in a climate now, it's interesting this week, where you see charges filed against company executives uh, over and over, uh, executives led away in handcuffs, executives put in prison, charged, indicted with, with this, that, and the other thing. And yet in the, in the Max case, uh, Boeing was essentially able to pay its way into a get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, now, it was a major settlement, and as we've talked about, a lot of good reasons uh, why in aviation safety uh, you need transparency, you need openness, um, and if you start throwing people in jail, uh, it's certainly going to impede that. Um, so I think for safety reasons, um, maybe it's different in aviation, um, but uh, there's certainly a stark contrast between what happened at Boeing with the 737 MAX and what's happening with cryptocurrency and a whole lot of other corporate scandals that hurt people, um, but in the MAX case, um, killed people. Ben, in other American Airlines news, Sirium found that American cut nearly 50,000 flights from its summer schedule this past week. Most of the flights are scheduled for June and July. That's about 5% of Americans' summer schedule. Americans said this was normal about 100 days out when it has a better idea of staffing and airplane availability. It's interesting because the industry is still suffering from its ability to get new pilots hired and trained fast enough and suffering from airline delivery delays from both Boeing and Airbus. Just this past week, Boeing had to suspend 787 deliveries with its ongoing issues with the FAA over certifying new jets off the assembly line. And Lufthansa also had to cut 30,000 flights from its summer schedule, a big hit. It cited staffing problems, that ongoing post-pandemic issue for airlines. Let's hope it's not deja vu all over again, Ben. 
I hope we're not in for another summer of airline reliability problems. One other note, United and Partners Air Canada, Boeing, GE Aerospace, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Honeywell announced the launch of a $100 million sustainable aviation fuel investment fund. That's good seed money to get promising sustainable aviation fuel projects going. But two things jumped out at me about that. First, that's a blue ribbon lineup of six big companies, and frankly, $100 million is small potatoes for them. And second, it's a disappointment that the industry has to fund research into fuel like this. This is a serious issue for aviation, and governments should be helping, as the U.S. government has with the auto industry and electric vehicles. Small private investment isn't going to get us very far. Scott, on the summer cancels, I think this is likely more normal ops than sort of a real concern about what might happen this summer. In general, airlines try to load more capacity than they know they'll be able to fly really far out because that gives them a better read of what demand really is. Then they can strategically trim back to what capacity they really have based on some data about where the demand really is. So when you talk about 5% in American, it's a lot of flights, but I would tend to believe them when they say it's kind of normal operations to load up big, watch what happens, and then trim the weak stuff out. Lufthansa's concerns me a little more since they specifically cited staffing problems. It makes me wonder whether the problem is bigger in Europe than in the U.S., even though we know the problem isn't completely solved in the U.S. But my sense, Scott, is that summer 2023 should not be a summer for U.S. airlines that is dominated by lack of staffing and flight cancellations. I think while there are still our issues in hiring pilots, the change in the rates of pay that's happened, the work that all airlines have done on hiring up, Frontier has come out and said, we don't have a problem hiring pilots, right? I think this summer isn't going to be a summer of staffing shortages for airlines. Let's hope it's not a reliability problem because they fly too many flights, however. So we're going to have to see where this comes up. I do see this as a dark cloud for Europe a bit, though, because maybe they've got to catch up more on the hiring side. It's possible that their work rules or their labor market may be different enough that they haven't been able to build up as much as the U.S. airlines have had. What do you think? I Well, I hope you are right about U.S. airline reliability. Uh, I, I also think you're, you're right about Europe. Uh, Lufthansa's um, had some labor actions uh, as well. Um, uh, there are real issues issues over there. Uh, on the scheduling, you know, it's it's really interesting because, and I think this is like a lot of issues, it becomes 
a bigger issue because we've had this consolidation, because we have these big airlines. So when an American trims 5% of its flights, it is a bigger deal than it was when American was half the size it is now, that, that kind of thing. But this is an interesting consumer issue. This is exactly, in some ways, exactly what the, what the FAA is investigating in terms of airline scheduling practices. And it's frankly a bit of a bait and switch um, to, to put flights out there for sale that you can't fly that becomes an inconvenience for the consumer. You've sold the consumer something you can't deliver. And as we know, as airlines, uh, it's their own practice, when you buy the ticket makes a big difference in the price. So it's not okay to sell you a ticket at one price 200 days out, change the schedule 100 days out, and then say, well, you can have a refund and go buy somewhere else if you don't like this flight that we've rebooked you on, but the price may be more expensive. And so the consumer is disadvantaged because of the airline scheduling practice. I think this is going to be a really interesting issue going forward as the government digs deeper into it. I agree, Scott. I I think this is an issue as the airlines get bigger, especially And then having to cancel as many flights as we've seen American have to do, even though in percentage terms, it's not that large. On the sustainable fuel, I agree with you that there's no way the private industry is going to create the volume of sustainable fuel needed to fuel all the airplanes flying around the globe. It's a massive, massive fuel issue and sustainable fuel, every airline is willing to try it. Every airline is willing to use it. But the availability to have enough to fuel even an airline the size of American, there's not enough available right now. And so to create the kind of groundswell and create the kind of critical mass of what you need for production of sustainable fuel is going to require not only the U.S. government, but world governments to get together and say, this is an important initiative for the planet. Couldn't agree more. Airlines Confidential appreciates the support of our great sponsors who bring you this podcast all year long. And I want to mention an exciting event that we'll be participating in this spring, Aviation Festival Americas 2023, which will be May 16th and 17th in Miami Beach. Ben and I will be on stage on the morning of the 17th recording the podcast with the audience and a very special guest. And Airlines Confidential listeners get a special discount. Just go to airlinesconfidential.com and click on the banner and use AC50 to save 50% on your registration. This is the 15th year for Aviation Festival Americas, and it's always a great group of industry leaders in excellent, informative, topical sessions. We'd love to meet listeners in Miami. So take advantage of that 50% discount and come see us. We're very excited to have with us today the CEO of Anuvo, Josh Marks. Josh and I have known each other for a number of years, and he's had a fascinating career. Welcome to the show, Josh. Thanks for having me, guys. 
Yeah, and why don't you start out by just giving our listeners a quick rundown of all you've done in the industry? Well, thank you. So I have been in this industry for a couple of decades. I actually started my career in internet infrastructure. And, uh, you know, I'd been a, a private pilot. I loved aviation. And I took the opportunity around 9-11 to, to shift and follow what I loved and get into the airline industry. And after learning the basics at George Washington University's Aviation Institute, I decided to start an airline and uh, started MaxJet in 2003. That was an international airline offering what I think you'd call now premium economy. Uh, went through the full life cycle of the airline from startup to funding to certification and growth and IPO and then chapter 11. And after that, uh, that wonderful experience, you know, I spent some time working with airlines on operational integrity. And that had been an area of focus for me at MaxJet. And I really found that the industry was starved for data around operations, not just their own operations, but what their competitors were doing, what was happening in, in the markets that they served. And from that uh, set of projects, I started a company called MassFlight, which aggregated uh, huge data sets to be able to inform airlines of what was happening. And over time, we built that company. Um, and that sold to Global Legal uh, in 2015. And that's how I joined the company that ultimately became Anuvu today, um, as we serve the airline industry across many different aspects of their passenger experiences. So I've had technology, airline experience, now telecommunications and entertainment services for airlines. It's really been a, a great ride. So, Josh, I think we first talked uh, when you were with MassFlight. I was, uh, when I was at the Wall Street Journal, I was a big user of that data. You guys had some, some really great data that uh, allowed us to really get a better picture of, of what was happening um, at airlines, what was happening to travelers. Um, but Anuvu is, is much more um, with, with communications and, and all. Tell us, uh, tell us what Anuvu does and what problems it's trying to solve. Yeah, it's, it's certainly been a, a change of pace, having spent time in, in uh, startup technology companies and airlines. Joining a diversified aviation supplier like Anuvu has been a, uh, an interesting learning curve for me. Uh, Anuvu is one of the leading providers of in-flight connectivity around the world, satellite-based connectivity uh, for passengers, as well as entertainment services. So if you watch a movie on board an airplane, it's pretty likely that somewhere in how that movie got from Hollywood or content production through to you watching it on the airline, we touched it in the value chain. We're, uh, we're a mid-sized company, about $500 million in revenue, uh, operate globally, and we have about 65 airlines around the world that we serve. That's fantastic. And it's great to know that every time I watch a movie on a plane, I'll be thinking of you, Josh. How important is onboard connectivity for airlines, do you think, both for the crew and the passengers? You know, I, I think we've, we've seen onboard connectivity become something that passengers now notice when it's not there. Uh, I'm not sure that it's high on the priority list yet. Uh, I think still price, you know, airport pair, schedule, seat design, and obviously loyalty programs continue to be reasons why people choose one airline or another. But I think every airline would say that it's on the list of things that passengers care about. Uh, and it's something that every airline would want if they could figure out how to do it cost effectively. Um, you know, it's also something that is a big commitment. Uh, when you put equipment for satellite connectivity on an aircraft, 
it's going to be on there for five to 10 years. And you need to make sure that the return on that investment is measurable and meaningful, whether it's the fees that you charge the passengers for accessing the system, or whether it's the loyalty or uh, yield gains that you can pick up by having it on board. So I think the jury is still out as to you know when we're going to get to 100% of airlines having connectivity, but we're seeing the traction now pretty clearly that additional airlines are choosing to put connectivity on, and I only you know expect that to accelerate as the economics of in-flight connectivity continue to get better over time. You know, when we talk about in-flight connectivity, what what customers think of, travelers think of, is is Wi-Fi. And I think travelers increasingly expect the Wi-Fi uh, to be free. It's uh, you know exactly what happened in coffee shops, right? Can airlines actually make money offering connectivity, or is it just going to be a cost of doing business? I think it varies by airline, uh, and and really, you know, I would start by breaking the passengers on a given airline into a couple of different buckets. First of all, you have the business passengers who are expensing their connectivity cost to their employers. And they're really likely to buy because somebody else is paying. Then you have passengers who are willing to pay themselves. Some are small business owners or lawyers or others who are not getting reimbursed, but they want to pay for it. But many also are paying for internet to be able to stream, to be able to use TikTok or get onto Facebook or who want to do messaging. And I think you know what we're seeing over time is that mix is different for every airline, right? So when you look at an airline's decision to go free, you have to evaluate what you're giving up, meaning you have uh, business passengers, for example, who might have paid for it before who are now gonna get it for free. But then you have the offset of attracting leisure passengers, small business owners who would have paid for Wi-Fi out of pocket and look at free Wi-Fi as a real savings, a real reason to choose your airline. And so I think if you're an airline that has a leisure focus, or if you're drawing traffic in really competitive markets where you're fighting for share and you're really looking to establish your presence, it can make a lot of sense to go free, right? Because you're capturing passengers in an accretive way for your carrier. On the other hand, if you're a major hub and spoke airline, if you have fortress hubs, if you have a real you know, established base of corporate contracts already and passengers are buying Wi-Fi uh, today, then you know I think the the calculation shift. It's not really about reinforcing your position with those business travelers that you already have. It's about attracting new customers in your spokes. It's about differentiating your service in more competitive markets outside of your fortress hubs, where you need to increase your value prop versus other airlines. And so I think the answer will be different for different airlines based on their network designs, based on their customer demographics. But it is certainly something that has been done successfully by airlines like JetBlue and Norwegian. And now I think we'll see how it works for a major legacy carrier, a hub-and-spoke legacy carrier like Delta, as they roll out their free Wi-Fi this year. That's a fascinating explanation. Uh, it, it, it was interesting to me, as I was thinking, as you said that, um, well, okay, now I see the strategy behind JetBlue's, but what about Delta? But then you mix in... Uh, the hub and spoke uh, carrier benefits and interest in getting uh, some kind of advantage in a copycat industry 
to attract business travelers from from competitors. Um, does it make sense to you that both uh, JetBlue and, and Delta have been out front on this? It, it makes total sense to me that JetBlue has. Uh, it, it was a key differentiator that they needed to have, and I think it's been successful along with Mint and other business-focused product offerings in diversifying the customer base that flies the airline. I think for, for major carriers like Delta, United, American, Southwest, et cetera, you know, what really matters most is making the process of buying Wi-Fi seamless. Airlines like United and American offer monthly or annual subscriptions. So the logon process when you get on the plane is, is trivial. It takes seconds, right? And I think that has equal value, maybe with the added attraction that once somebody has bought into an annual subscription, they enjoy the Wi-Fi on board the plane and they have a natural lock into the carrier. So mm-hmm. I think it, this all has to be looked at through the lens of what yield you're trying to drive in terms of your core customer base. How do you differentiate your product against other carriers for specific demographics like business or affluent leisure? And then finally, do you think that all of that is worth it against the cost of carrying the equipment, of carrying the service, right? Which isn't trivial. And, and I think when you put all of that together, you know, if you're Delta and you're competing for share in markets like Kansas City or St. Louis that aren't really dominated by anybody and where passengers are, are, are uh, uh, much more likely to, to choose a, an airline based on its product as opposed to its loyalty program, it makes a ton of sense. And I think that's really mm-hmm. the game that, you know, Delta is, is trying now. And we'll see whether it translates to added share or yield in those markets. And, and not just Kansas City and St. Louis, but New York and Los Angeles, too. Correct. Well, I'd say they love the lock-in on American until they're transferred from Dallas to Denver. <laughs> then they're going to say, why did I pay for that lock-in? Yep. Well, Josh, I think the two most interesting things in the U.S. on this were Delta offering this free to frequent flyers. That made me think as part of this, do they see as offsetting the cost of this, trying to get more people engaged in SkyMiles? And then secondly, Spirit as kind of a ULCC deciding to offer Wi-Fi and they're going to charge for it, but not all that much. And just going that route makes them unique within that space. Given those two things, do you think that eventually Wi-Fi is going to be free on most airlines? No, is the short answer. I think Wi-Fi will be strategically bundled into certain fare classes. And it will be saved as an add-on, an ancillary revenue generator for the lowest fares. And that comes to sort of the simple reality of how tickets are, are compared and bought uh, by, by consumers worldwide, right? Some are very price-focused and others are value-focused. So for price-focused, you follow the path that Spirit's following, right? You offer a base fare that doesn't include it. You unbundle Wi-Fi and it's an affordable, reasonable upgrade for the people who want it. On the other hand, for uh, you know, carriers that are much more savvy at bundling and, and uh, more corporate focused, perhaps, then Wi-Fi becomes a differentiator for its most elite passengers. It, it becomes part of fare bundles to incentivize people to buy up. Wi-Fi can be a, a, a tool. It can be a weapon that airlines can use in order to drive yield and ancillary revenue. And for that reason, making it free for everybody you know, leaves a lot of money on the table, I think. 
I think that's a very good way to think about it. Let's go to an earlier part of your career when you were at MaxJet. I'm happy to say that I flew MaxJet once, and it was a very nice product you offered. Thank you. Thank you. But MaxJet didn't work for a number of reasons, and yet we see almost every couple years a new sort of long-haul, low-cost carrier. We've seen WOW, we've seen Level, now we see North Air and Play and airlines like that. Any advice you'd want to give to any of these new transatlantic startups? You know, the the MaxJet experience was fascinating in a couple of key ways. Remember that, that we operated from London to cities across the United States in a time period where Bermuda II was still in effect, right? There wasn't open skies between the US and the UK at that point. So we had a, a, an interesting dynamic where Heathrow was the fortress for the carriers that served these key transatlantic routes. And that left a big catchment area on the east side of London in affluent areas like Essex, where they were underserved. They had a two to three hour drive to Heathrow. So we identified that we could put a lot of capacity into Stansted, fly it back to the United States, and basically have a lane to ourselves in terms of of competition and product. Now, I think the the, key questions that I would ask if I were in a long-haul startup today boil down to, do I have protected market opportunities? Is there an opportunity for me to do something really unique that's difficult for anybody else to match? The first thing you would look for is where do you have route protection? Where do you have slots that restrict others' ability to come and compete with you? Where do you have distinctive regulatory environments or bilateral agreements that give you a a seam that you can exploit, right? And what that really distills down to is if you are a startup, whether you're a short haul, long haul, domestic, international, you need to start in markets where you have enough time to be able to build a point of sale. I think. You know, looking back at, at startups that have successfully made it through, whether it was JetBlue starting with its slot base at, at JFK, you know, Avello's done very similar now with New Haven, Allegiant established a very unique position bringing traffic to Las Vegas. Whether it's domestic or international, you have to have those market opportunities where you have defensibility. You cannot skim. You cannot be the fifth or sixth player in those markets without a point of sale you can call your own. So yeah, I I struggle with exploiting only the economics of the aircraft without having durability in the markets you choose, the routes you choose, and the product you offer on board. So for that reason, I would say that the real challenge with long-haul flying in a low-cost environment is not with the aircraft. Anybody can put 300 seats onto a plane. It's finding the markets and routes where you have the opportunity to draw from defined points of sale on routes where you have some defensibility for the critical first couple of years as you build recognition. I think there are very few of those out there today. That's probably the best advice I've ever heard, Josh, for a new transatlantic startup. And it seems to me that a number of the newest players in this space the ones who are basing their whole business on sort of low-cost transatlantic flying, I'm not sure how many of them have really asked that question to themselves. Do you agree? I, I do. And, and I think 
what's also important to recognize is the trip cost on long haul flying is so high, you need by definition to serve big markets. But then big markets are already served by many different carriers. And in many cases, long haul by immunized joint ventures that are really hard to compete against. So I do think that it's easier to start short and then go long. It's easier to, to develop a point of sale through a domestic network and then add on international flying as JetBlue did, as Indian carriers have started to do, as we see over and over again in Europe as well. Because again, once you have a, a dominant presence, once you have a point of sale in a key market where you can attract leisure and business traffic through name recognition and repeat experience, it's far easier at that point to add international capacity to your network than to start international and then try to figure out feed and sustainability and presence the other way. It's interesting. I, I flew MaxJet once as well. My, my recollection, Josh, is that it, it was high oil prices that, that ultimately killed MaxJet and, and the others, EOS and some of the others at the same time. But it, it, I think the generally accepted wisdom is that uh, a low-cost carrier loses its cost advantage on long-haul routes. Um, you said start small and then, and then go long. Um, do you think, you think ultimately it's not just the, the competitive markets uh, problem, but also the, you lose your cost advantage on a long-haul route? Yeah, I, I think you know, people look back to that time window and say fuel cost was the killer for airlines from the fourth quarter of 2007 to call it the end of 2008. Really, the, the fuel impact was measurable and it was significant, but it was the demand drop in the high-end markets that we really saw most acutely. And I remember, you know, we would, we would look at our loads and our bookings week after week, obviously, looking at the data. I remember at the beginning of, of, uh, of December of 2007, looking at the bookings out of the United Kingdom where we had the majority of our traffic originating, and it just went off a cliff. As, as the, the recession hit the UK in the fourth quarter of 2007, all of that disposable income that used to, to be present just disappeared. And we knew the party was over, right? And you know it basically became a game at that point of how could you smartly use the capital that you still had and how could you restructure into something else? And that's why within the course of, of four or five months, basically all of the, the long haul, low cost transatlantic guys either went out of business or pivoted and became part of somebody else. It was a different game, I think, domestically. But again, the higher your product is pitched, the worse suited you are for a recession. Conversely, the lower and cheaper and more unbundled your product is, the more you thrive during a recession. Because what used to be the customers on an affluent premium airline become the customers who now want to travel in ULCCs. And so I think the game, again, is, is to look at resilience and growth during recessions and how you can be best positioned to take advantage of those markets versus, you know, living off of the cream of, you know, uh, an exuberant sort of economic environment, which is what a lot of us were doing through those, those mid 2000s time period. Hmm. So you mentioned data. Should, should airlines be investing more in data scientists and using big data in more ways? Are, are they already doing that? How, how would data help the industry today? You know, I, I think uh, having spent you know ten years in data and really in big data of airline operations, I don't think the problem is hiring more data scientists or making an investment in data lakes. Air, airlines are already doing that. 
I think you know there's so much data coming off of customer smartphone apps out of their internal operating systems. There's enough to fill the lake. I think the issue now is that airlines need to reconsider the role of data scientists as they make complex operational and really cross-functional decisions in their airlines. Because today what I see is data science is very much embedded deep in each function of the airline, or worst of all, it's perceived as IT, where what it needs to be is the glue that holds together network revenue and operations. And you know, when I think about risk reduction, when I think about those decisions that airlines have to make every day and every month as they plan between operational reliability and aircraft utilization or between hub and spoke opportunities versus flow or block efficiency you know, versus staffing levels. Those are all inherently cross-functional problems, but they're decided using data that comes from those individual silos inside of each business unit. And I think that creates the opportunity for unintended consequences, right? Where an airline does really well at optimizing revenue, but they tank their on-time performance by loading too much capacity, where they develop new routes uh, in their network that actually create really ugly crew pairings and then force higher staffing levels. Those are the kinds of trade-offs that I think data science can do a much better job of helping airlines solve. So, you know, the advice I would give, if I were running an airline today, I would treat data science exactly like I would treat financial planning and analysis, right? At most airlines, FP&A has a really important role at the table where they're right there side by side with business leaders, putting the financial structure and cost benefit analysis around decisions. Data science needs to basically have an equivalent seat, especially for any decisions that are cross-functional in nature and where management is trying to evaluate you know, what's going to happen if they do X. And, and I think that's where data scientists need to have a different role and respect in the organization. And all this needs to become a C-level type function. And I think it could be immensely helpful to use the data that the airlines already are collecting. Another great perspective. Do you think the pandemic has changed your view of connectivity? In some ways, it seems more important than ever now to me. Yeah, I think connectivity is more important now. And I think it would be whether or not we had the pandemic, because what we're seeing is a change in the applications that people are using when they're on board planes. If you think about how our lives have changed, it was accelerated by the pandemic, right? Instead of emails, we now work off of Slack or Teams or Zoom, right? Instead of trading sort of personal messages over Gmail, we're, we're communicating over WhatsApp and iMessage. So demand for connectivity, you know, as an everyday, every minute part of our lives is definitely higher. And I think you see more passengers now who are clearly looking to sign on to the connectivity systems. Those uses have changed as well, sort of how we think about streaming onboard airplanes, that intersection of connectivity and entertainment. You know, three years ago, four years ago, people would get on planes and they'd want to watch Netflix, right? They'd want to stream over the top. But today, 80% of Americans have at least one streaming platform that they subscribe to. They see a lot of this content at home. When they get interested in a series, I'm, I'm sure you've seen, you know, the first thing that you see on HBO Max or Disney Plus or, or Netflix applications is an option to download the content. So we're actually seeing less of a requirement now for people to stream content on the planes in a, a way that consumes a ton of data. And even when people are streaming, 
because they now watch it on smartphones as opposed to laptops, you can get away with a higher compression rate, right? The screen doesn't need to be as detailed. And that's good because what we're also seeing is that these social media applications are chewing up incredible amounts of bandwidth, right? If you think about apps like TikTok or Reels, uh, you know, in order to load the next piece of content you're going to see, they send information up to the cloud. And so where before it just used to be about a freight train of data coming from the internet to your seat over the aircraft connectivity system, today it's really much more of an interactive requirement, right? There needs to be a lot more data uploaded from the plane. And that's what's driving the changes in satellite networks. That's what's driving the interest in these new low earth orbit satellite systems, because in order to get really strong connectivity, both to the aircraft and from it, we're going to need to see continued improvement in the satellite networks. We're going to need to see new hardware on the planes. And I think only when you get those, those key pieces of infrastructure in place, are we going to see a connectivity system on board that meets the expectations of everyday passengers. So Josh, you have such a broad perspective across the industry. I'm curious what if you saw Scott Kirby's comments about ULCCs, and he was he was bashing ULCCs, saying not much future, and and the model was flawed. What do you think? I I would I would not have the same view. <laughs> Look, I think I there, there's just like you see, you know, many different types of cars sold to consumers. Luxury brands, uh, sports cars, SUVs, electric cars, you're going to see continued diversification inside of the airline world, even if everybody's cost structures are going up. I think, you know, as we look at, at pilot costs in particular, yeah, pilots are getting more expensive and that's not going to get any better anytime soon. Some would say, nor should it, right? We're, we're adequately compensating pilots now for the cost of their training, the, the, the work that has to go into becoming a pilot. And that's great. But I think as, as you look at pilot cost, it's really only you know, a, a small part of what we need to be thinking about. Aircraft are getting more efficient, particularly you know, narrow body planes. Uh, as we look at product on board the plane, ULCCs have a ton of flexibility looking forward and how they can monetize. And because they're you know, typically more focused in their product offer, they can make technology investments that drive new ancillary revenue sources far better, I think, than you know, moving a monolith like a major global network carrier. So I think that the missing component here is, yeah, there may be a slight narrowing in terms of cost structure as ULCC costs escalate, fixed costs ex- escalate over time. And maybe you see that start to converge a little bit more with, with airlines, with major network airlines. But I think that the, the point that's missing is there are different ways to generate revenue as well. And the technology investments that, that are being made by ULCCs today to drive new ancillary revenues, I think will be very flexible in helping to make up that gap. So I just see a, a continued divergence in the industry where network carriers are moving in one direction and ULCCs and even you know, more, more amenities-based low-cost carriers are moving in a different direction but I see both as highly sustainable over time. Very interesting. Josh, this has been terrific. Thank you very much. Uh, fascinating discussion. And, uh, and we look forward to all that in-flight connectivity and, and movies that you do provide. Um, congratulations on it all. And thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, guys. I really enjoyed it. Great job, Josh. Thank and you. we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. 
promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. We want to thank our sponsor, Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is a world leader in aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is driving the next generation of more sustainable travel. Its revolutionary geared fan architecture is allowing airlines and airports to open new routes and fly more people farther with less fuel and much lower noise. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Scott, we had a lot of interesting listener response and comments this week. We love it when our listeners go to our website, airlinesconfidential.com, and use the form at the bottom of the page to send us comments, criticisms, and questions. Ryan responded to my call for more listener comment on the question of whether airlines and trainers are doing a good job washing out weak pilots. Ryan says, I'm a line check airman at a major airline. I can confirm the accuracy of your listeners' questions last week about weeding out weak pilots. It's very hard to weed out or fire a pilot from a 121 career. With pilot unions and HR be involved, safety is third. A major issue I'm witnessing is when the airlines do weed out a pilot, they allow the pilot to quit rather than be terminated. The Pilot Records Improvement Act, a 1996 law passed after several accidents, blamed on pilot error, is very vague and only shows check rides but not stage checks or the entire training records. PREA, the Pilot Records Improvement Act, does not give color to the pilot's skills and abilities. We had the worst pilot I have ever flown with try to upgrade because his seniority number could hold captain. He could not make it through the check on programming the flight management system on the same aircraft he had flown for four years. After three rechecks as captain, he was downgraded and had to test to become a first officer again. That pilot is now at a different airline, training on the 787. PREA paperwork needs to be amended to show all the records. What do you think about that, Scott? Ben, I think Ryan makes a great point, and I hope the NTSB and FAA investigations into these recent incidents take a look at the issue of how pilot performance records are shared. You know, I'm I'm reminded of uh, recent episodes of uh, teacher hiring um, where uh, teachers accused of harassing students don't get fired. They're allowed to resign and they go to another school district. And now states are passing what they call pass the trash laws. And, you know, maybe we need that kind of thing for airlines as well. You know, Scott, I know a lot of pilots. You probably do too. And I think if you talk to pilots, they don't want pilots who don't really know what they're doing as part of their profession. Right. They know that that hurts their profession and they know that that has people question all pilots when a single pilot 
sort of maybe isn't prepared for the amazing responsibility they take on with each flight. So while unions may have to play the role they play, my guess is that most pilots, if you ask them privately, would agree with what was said by this line instructor that we do want to weed out the bad apples early on. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, they're sitting right next to them. Their life is on the line as well. And you need somebody in that cockpit you can count on uh, to do the right thing in an emergency to um, and, and to just help handle the, the heavy workload when there's a heavy workload. I think that's absolutely right. I, I also think this is a, a rare issue because I do think uh, through a lot of training, if you're not cut out for this uh, work, for this profession, if you don't have the aptitude for it, and many people don't, um, most pilots, you know, are are incredibly skilled and incredibly good at their job. But uh, for whatever reason, um, there are some people that are able to rise to airline jobs and don't have the skills, and and I think that's uh, that's the issue um, because the lack of skills may unfortunately um, turn into tragedy. Okay. Another listener comment. Peter from Tucson responded to our concern over the rash of close calls in the air and on the ground at airports. And by the way, there was another one recently in Burbank, California, where a regional jet was cleared to take off from the same runway where another regional jet was only about a mile out from landing. The landing plane did a go around. Peter says, Your comments at the beginning of your podcast on February 14th touched a nerve as a career professional pilot and safety officer. I can count at least six safety systems and programs in place to reduce the type of incidents you pointed out. Human error and complacency, however, cannot be regulated or controlled except by all of us as aviation professionals. I have found that the simple act of review and open, frank discussion of incidents and accidents on a regular basis is one of the most effective ways to raise awareness and prompt discussion among crew members, even after formal safety training. That makes sense. And I hope that all airlines, and I bet they do, have enough time in their recurrent training sessions to go through these kinds of things, to have discussions around incidents that have happened, to review unstable approaches, to look at incidents that have happened in that pilot group over the last few months, whether there's problems with a specific approach at a specific airport, and talk through those things in recurrent training. Matt from Rochester says, just a quick note to say that I enjoy listening to the show and appreciate your partnership with the Aviation Festival of Americas. I just bought my ticket and look forward to seeing you there. Thanks, Matt. We look forward to meeting you. And Jesse, who describes his location as flying upside down, says, I found it very interesting that after you guys talked very in-depth about the need for airlines to do something about families being able to sit together, United changed their seating policy for families under 12. It seems as though someone was listening. Love the show. Keep it up. Thanks, Jesse. For the record, United said it's been working on the change since summer. 
But I think the president poking airlines in the State of the Union address certainly sparked more movement than anything. That's all for Airlines Confidential this week. We look forward to hearing from you, and we'll be back next week with more insight into airlines and travel. So long. Have a great week, everyone. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.